Brick Moon Fiction presents Moonlight Sonata by Jack Moody Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle He's a fucking despot, Lauren muttered. There's no way this will happen. There's no way. We're better than this. Are we? The third chair cellist barked from the back of the room. Maybe this is the guy we deserve. Don't even talk like that. Martha Brooks watched the television in silence, unable to contribute to the vitriol bubbling up in the living room of her Hyde Park home. CNN cut to the graphic of the United States, filling up with a stark yellow across every border more and more with each minute past. He'd taken Florida, Idaho, New York, Massachusetts. The yellow stretched across the south, crawling over through the Midwest towards the West Coast, giving Martha the unsettling feeling like she was witnessing the outbreak of a deadly airborne pathogen spreading across her country in real time. He even took fucking Illinois, the second chair percussionist declared, slamming his hand against Martha's early 19th century mahogany coffee table. Did any of you even care to vote? This is pathetic. The room fell quiet. I'm a conscientious abstainer, one piped up. That's why you're fifth chair, another spat. No passion, no balls. You got no fucking balls, conscientious abstainer. Ha! What a load of bullshit. Well, did you vote? That's beside the point, Maury. Fellow members of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra had congregated at Martha's home to stroke their upper-class liberal sensibilities and presumably celebrate their by-proxy victory over an evil man running for President of the United States in the year of our Lord, 2020. His meteoric rise to the top of the polls had come on like wildfire, a frightening and confusing development for political analysts, investigative journalists, and 90% of the country's population alike. His policies were not in line with anything any other party in the history of the U.S. had ever seen. Hated by every creed and political affiliation except select and obscure sects of American far radicals only interested in the disintegration of the species, conspiracy theories quickly arose claiming that there was something deeper in play. What precisely was deeper in play was up for wide debate and disagreement, but what was widely agreed upon was that the democratic process would have no effect on the outcome of this election. Three hours in, the palpable air of success had fizzled away with the emergence of that sickly yellow burning from sea to shining sea. The table and floor were littered with emptied champagne bottles, the balloons popped, the streamers ripped from the ceiling, lying beside the bottles like dead snakes. Panic layered the news anchor's words through the television. We've now gotten word that he's taken Ohio. It appears to be over. We're expecting a concession speech from his opponents any moment now. And that's it, said Lauren, her head sunken into her lap. We've hit bottom. The fourth chair violinist leaned over to check if the bottle closet had any left. Do you think the shit people have been saying is true? About the bombings? That won't happen said the second chair flutist. Just angry militants running their mouths. It's 2020. Society is too advanced to allow another civil war. Or at least anything real that wouldn't be squashed out in 24 hours. People are angry, Lauren cut in, her face somber and gray. It's not the same. People are really fucking angry. The group turned their heads and looked on at the image of their new president, smiling and waving from atop a podium. Confetti fell to the ground around him, catching on the soldiers' fatigue standing on either side with heavy black M-16s pressed against the medals on their chests. 
The news ticker below crawled across the screen. 46th President confirmed. Threats of violence in the thousands. Emergency lines backlogged across country, responses limited. Retaliation attacks reported in New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Death tolls as yet unknown. National Guard being deployed in affected cities. Martha snatched the remote off the table and switched off the screen. It doesn't matter. Nothing we can do. What did that mean? Retaliation attacks? said the violinist, eyes wide and still focused on the static floating off the black screen, as if the words were still legible. Does that mean the bombings? Mass shootings? No, said the flutist. Probably just a few meth-head clansmen firing off some buckshots to celebrate. The media is misinformation central. Lauren stood and pulled away the curtains, looking out the window with a clear view of the Chicago skyline. Those were major cities they listed. That's not a couple of rednecks with shotguns in the woods. And even the KKK came out against him. Couldn't even get the racists' support. He hates everything on earth equally. Except the rich, said Martha. Right, Lauren scoffed. Except the rich. It was at that moment that Lauren watched the first detonation in the city of Chicago. First was the disorienting flash of light, then the release of violent and fantastic colors as the Sears Tower collapsed, like someone had hurled a bucket of bright pastel paints out across the night sky. It was beautiful. Then the sound caught up. A massive boom, dulled and flattened by the distance, shook the foundations of Martha's home, as if an earthquake had hit. Martha shot up from the couch. Basement! Basement now! Before the group had time to react, she was at their backs, pushing everyone towards the staircase. More tremors, more explosions erupted outside as they made their way down. She could hear the city alight from within her walls, the faint collective screams, the frantic honks of drivers trapped, helicopters chugging back and forth, combing the skies. The city was descending into chaos. Once the door shut, Martha reached blindly towards the center of the ceiling, groping until feeling the metal cord connected to the lone light bulb. It flickered twice, then glowed orange, bathing her fellow musicians and accentuating the fear dug into the grimaces and clenched teeth. What's happening? the cellist shouted. What do we do now? It's happening, cried the violinist. We're under attack. That motherfucker! That motherfucker is going to destroy the country before he even gets into office. We need to stay calm, said Lauren, eyes darting between the corners of the dusty room. First of all, does anyone have cell service? Just then, a shrill, piercing scream grew louder above their heads, gaining in intensity and volume until... Get down! Maury screamed. As the group dropped to the ground, the explosive went off somewhere above the roof, an apocalyptic bang that brought with it the crash of architecture and nature toppling down over each other in the resulting blast. The walls trembled, and a thick layer of dust erupted throughout the basement, filling the room with a translucent brown cloud. How close was that? Did that hit the house? The flutist wailed. Martha stood, wiped the dust off her cardigan, and looked at her phone. I've got no bars. Anyone else? The others slowly gathered themselves, reached into their purses and tuxedo breast pockets. I've got nothing. Me neither. Same over here. Well, that's great, she sighed. 
Martha began gliding across the room, running her fingers along the film of dust still unshaken from long-forgotten objects she'd exiled to the basement years ago. Old boxes of family photographs, records bent out of shape and scratched by the passing of time and neglect, an out-of-tune violin still lying in wait within its case from her failed attempt at learning the instrument as a child. It just never stuck with her. The music theory was there, but the actual execution didn't come. She gave up trying, visited her grandmother's house the next week, and there she discovered the piano. After that moment, Martha had never gone longer than 24 hours without feeling the cool touch of ivory against her fingers. Twenty years after that first day in her grandmother's living room, Martha was hailed across the world as perhaps the greatest living pianist, the star of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, world-renowned for her almost mystical abilities. She had stumbled upon her true calling. It just came naturally, she would tell the press, eagerly fawning over her world-famous rendition of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. That piece just comes out of me. I can't place it. People would come from around the world to hear her play, would pay upwards of a thousand dollars just for the chance to hear her perform that solitary piece. Saudi Arabian princes, Wall Street billionaires, even her soon-to-be former president asked for a private concert. Some critics would say she might even play Beethoven's work better than the man had himself. Listening to Martha Brooks play the piano was something the ultra-wealthy simply had to experience before they died. She was a commodity of the highest tier. Martha continued across the walls of the basement, still quivering every few moments from the strength of the blasts still ongoing outside, until coming upon the piano. Her grandmother's piano. It was a parting gift she provided for her granddaughter in the days before her passing. The old woman knew how much it meant to her, and had the great black-and-white beast shipped to her address, where it was promptly dragged down into the basement and out of sight, a decrepit eyesore compared to the $130,000 sterling silver Steinway with high-polished ebony that was given to her by the king of some foreign country she didn't quite care about. But it was a status symbol, People knew whom she was when they walked into her $3.4 million home and spotted the shining thing standing proudly in the center of the gallery room. Standing there now, though, as bombs dropped across the city overhead, Martha wondered why she had never returned to that faithful friend that opened up this beautiful life for her that she reveled in so much. She tapped lightly on the C-sharp key. It pinged and echoed across the basement, turning the heads of her peers, who were just before too busy arguing in hushed tones over who had the knowledge necessary to get the aged transistor radio in the corner working again. The old girl was still in tune. After all those years. Martha! Lawrence snapped to bring her back to reality. Do you know how to get this thing working? Change the batteries, she said, eyes still trained on her hand making the shape of an E chord, pressing softly against the keys letting the sound ring louder now. She sounded perfect, as if no time had passed since that day at her grandmother's. Maury growled and flipped the radio over to pop open the back. Change the fucking batteries? Change the batteries? Shit, I could have thought of that. He pulled out the old batteries, rummaged around the boxes and drawers until finding four new ones, stuck those back in. Hey, I got a joke. How many musical geniuses does it take to change the batteries on a radio? A fucking lot, apparently. 
I hope you're not including yourself in that equation, said the percussionist. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Fifth chair, Maury. Fifth chair. Hey, I'm in the goddamn orchestra, aren't I? Wait. With a startling crackle, the radio came to life, coughing out a thin frequency of white noise that silenced the room. It worked. Lauren rushed over and sat down next to their beacon of hope, turning the knob through channel after channel of static until a muddled voice came on. Listen, she shouted. We've got something. Martha looked up from her nostalgic trance. The voice was difficult to decipher. If you're receiving this, martial law declared. In your homes. Stay in your homes. Military. I repeat, military rescue operations. Remain in your homes until. Arrives. I repeat. Until military rescue arrives. The transmission then cut out, returning abruptly to static. Then that's it, said the cellist. We just have to wait here until help comes. You heard that, right? Yeah, said Lauren. So then we wait. Martha sat down at the piano and began to play. Twenty-four hours passed before the explosion hit. Bombs and gunfire had been going off non-stop since the night before, but remained safely at a distance, raining down upon the city proper. This explosion was close. Those that were asleep shook awake, disoriented, as the few on watch flew to their feet. What was that? It sounded like it came from just above us. More bombs? No, that wasn't a big enough blast. The group froze in place. Eyes glued to the ceiling as the light bulb flickered and rocked back and forth. There were screams, then the harsh clang of an object making contact with another object. Someone is here. Someone is breaking in. It's them, shouted the violinist. We're saved. Heavy footsteps slammed against the upper level floor, many of them. More voices. Open the door, the flutist urged. Let them know we're here. Hey! Hey, we're down here, downstairs. Maury leapt upon him, tackling him to the ground. Shut up. You don't know who that is, man. Martha rose. It's fine, Maury. They'll find us anyway. She walked calmly towards the basement door, undid the latch, and opened it up to the dim light of her home. We're all down here, she called. Don't bother tearing up the place. Come down. We're unarmed. The shuffling of heavy boots on marble floors paused. Then came a deep, gruff voice from one of the men upstairs. Is this the home of Martha Brooks? How does he know that? The cellist whispered. Yes, you're speaking to her. May I ask whom I'm speaking to? Another pause. This is Sergeant Michael Conley, ma'am, of the United States National Guard. We are going to come down now. That's all right. Martha stepped back into the room as the others backed away behind her. The footsteps grew louder and closer until the barrel of an assault rifle poked out around the corner. Then came the soldiers, fanning out into the room. She counted six, all adorned in full military gear. Grenades hung from gray and black urban camouflage uniforms, helmets strapped around their chins, dirt and soot caked across their faces. The unmistakable dark red stains of blood streaked across some of their clothing and boots. For a moment, 
the musicians and soldiers stood staring at each other, hesitantly, like indigenous tribes who had never come in contact with other humans. Then Sergeant Conley spoke. I wasn't sure we were going to find you, ma'am. Well, you did. The flutist cut in. What the hell is going on out there, sir? He ignored his question. Miss Brooks, I need you to come with us. What do you mean she does? Lauren asked, stepping forward to stand beside Martha. Are you getting us out of here? The soldiers behind the sergeant stepped forward and raised their weapons. You are Martha Brooks, the pianist for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. The woman who plays Moonlight Sonata, among other things. Answer the question, please, ma'am. Yes, I am Martha Brooks, pianist for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, world-famous performer of the Moonlight Fucking Sonata. What does this have to do with anything? Get us out of here. The soldiers clicked the safeties off their weapons. I'm sorry, ma'am. We're under strict orders. You need to come with us. The faster you do this, the better it will go. Strict orders? She snapped. Orders from who? You're with the United States military. You work for the country. We're United States citizens. Now get us out of here. There's no United States to take orders from any longer, ma'am, Sergeant Conley stated. Our orders aren't from the government. Your presence has been requested. Now come with us unless you are requiring us to use force. Maury stepped forward between Martha and the barrels of the soldiers' rifles. Now wait a minute. We're all musicians here. We all play for the orchestra. That's why you want her, right? Because she plays the piano? The soldiers snickered. What do you play? The sergeant asked. Under the light bulb's glow, Martha could make out the long, deep scar running down from Conley's eyebrow to his chin, like the bottom of a dried-out river. Well, I'm the fifth chair percussionist. And what do you play? Maury looked around at his peers. He stammered. The, the symbols? Sergeant Conley chuckled. Then his eyes lit up, and he released a booming, gravelly laugh. <laughs> the symbols! Before Maury could defend his bruised ego, the sergeant raised his rifle up to the chest of the fifth chair percussionist for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and fired. The flash of light blinded Martha, the close proximity discharge deafening the horrified screams of her peers. When her senses returned, she was standing over the lifeless body, leaking a shimmering crimson that pooled out from the gaping hole in Maury's chest. Jesus Christ! The words erupted out like they had come from a separate entity within her. What have you done? Sergeant Conley grasped Martha's arm and pulled her towards the exit. Now, Mrs. Brooks, let's go. He turned to his subordinates. Do them once we're out of the house. No, no, no! Martha kicked and screamed as the sergeant began dragging her. What's been happening out there? What did that motherfucker do? What did he do? The soldiers formed a wall behind Martha and her captor and took aim at the paralyzed survivors. Then, as Martha's legs crashed against the steps and she lost sight of her friend, came Lauren's panicked voice. Wait, hey, hang on. Just, just wait a second. I play the violin. Sergeant Conley stopped, letting Martha's body hang stiff across the steps as his fist gripped her hair. So what? He barked. I'm the first chair violinist in one of the most prestigious orchestras in the world. Just listen to me play, please. 
They'll want me too. Just listen to me play. Sergeant Conley looked down at Martha. It's true. It's true, she sputtered. Please, I don't know who your bosses are, but if they want me, they'll want her. I, I promise. Please, sir. There were screams from the group. What about us? Fuck you, Martha. Fuck you. Followed by the dull thud of rifle butts connecting with flesh and the suffocated grunts of the victims. Shut up! The sergeant screamed. He hollered around the corner, still gripping onto Martha. I don't suppose you have an instrument down there, miss. Lauren! She shouted. My name is Lauren McCallum. I, I know they've heard of me. I I'm fucking famous. They'll want me. Lauren! Martha called out through labored breaths. There's a violin down there against the wall. Lauren, take it out. She looked up at her captor and pleaded. She'll play for you, sir, please. She's the best in the world. Just listen to her. They'll want her. He exhaled, and another bomb went off miles away, shaking the floorboards. Fine. Play something for us. There were frantic clangs as Lauren scrambled across the room, knocking over Martha's aged relics before finding the decades-old violin. She took it out, lifted the bow, and rested the instrument between her neck and shoulder. Then silence. Well, Conley shouted, play something. Come on, Lauren, Martha whispered. Come on, play. Then it came. Through the walls, the soft notes of the violin sang and reverberated inside her ears. The room quieted. She had heard her play a thousand times. Listening to Lauren McCallum play the violin was like reading Dostoevsky. It changed you. But then something happened. The notes faltered, screeched, cried in pain. Something was wrong. The music stopped. Wait, Lauren stammered. Hang on. Something was wrong. She began again. The first note released like the robin's chirp on the first day of spring, like the voice of a dead parent. Then again it fell away, broke apart. When it occurred to Martha, it was too late. She had forgotten. The violin was out of tune. Wait, wait, came Lauren's voice over the silence. It's not me. I, I just need to... I've heard enough, said Sergeant Conley. He tapped on the wall. Do it. Martha felt the force of Conley's strength once again, dragging her up the staircase. Oh, wait. Lauren's screams shook the walls as much as the blasts decimating the city. It's not my fault, it's... The last thing Martha Brooks heard before being knocked unconscious was the unified burst of gunfire coming from the basement of her $3.4 million Hyde Park estate. Martha awoke with her ankles chained to the legs of a piano bench. A man dressed in a black suit stood behind her with a rifle laid across his arms. He wore a black ski mask, allowing no window into his identity but the brown eyes visible through cut-out holes. The piano before her was smooth and white and adorned with gold inlay lining the body and impressed deep into the ebony and ivory keys. She sat in the center of a large circular room, decorated like the study you'd find tucked away in the back of a 19th century Victorian mansion. Large hearth rugs stretched across the floors. Bookcases 50 feet high stood against the oak wood walls. White pillars rose from the floor to the ceiling 
and from them extended long red drapes decorated with obscure iconography that Martha couldn't recognize. Two large fireplaces burned at either end of the room. A gilded spiral staircase twisted up in one corner, leading to an ominous black door looming overhead. And within all this sat dozens of men, old white men, reclining in suede armchairs, smoking fat cigars with whiskey glasses held loosely between fat fingers. They talked amongst themselves, ignoring her presence. Martha jerked her legs, and upon realizing she was awake and this was reality, let out a long, wailing scream. Help me! Somebody help me! Get these off me, please! The old men glanced up for a moment, indifferent, then returned to their conversations. That's her, isn't it? One said to another. Yes, indeed. I saw her perform in Vienna in 2017. Exquisite. You'll appreciate it, I'm sure. When she failed to stifle her cries, the masked man walked up behind her, turned the rifle around, holding it like a spear, and thrust the butt into the back of her head. Play, he ordered. Martha straightened out, tears streaming down her face, the black makeup running down her cheeks, and yelped, What do you mean? Please help me. And again the butt of the rifle landed against the back of her skull. Play, he repeated. Play something. You're the pianist. Figure it out. Martha breathed out, her body trembling, and placed her fingers along the keys. Her hands were shaking so violently she could hardly exert the strength to play the notes. She looked around the room, dumbfounded, hyperventilating. Then one of the old men chirped, taking the cigar out of his mouth. Ms. Brooks, play some Chopin, won't you? Thank you, Ms. Brooks. Is no one going to... Martha stopped herself and flinched. Wherever she was, this was the situation she was in. There was only one thing she could do to avoid being struck again. Nocturne Opus 55, number one in F minor. She played slow and delicate, the notes washing over her, and with each measure completed, a sense of melancholy acceptance began to fill up her body. The trembling subsided. The twisting and swirling within her mind dissipated, and she was now present. The hushed voices of her audience came into focus, and she could hear the conversation between the two closest as she played. In the hundreds of thousands is what I've heard from the bunker in London. Dead? That's right. Millions, though, have been rounded up. Where they're going, I don't care to know. It doesn't quite matter, does it? No, it doesn't. Is it all how it should be? Yes, yes, no one is the wiser. Red versus blue, black versus white. They're all fighting a ten-sided civil war without knowing what they're even fighting about. Poor ignorant fools. Well, that's quite the point, isn't it? <laughs> poor versus the poor. After all these centuries, the simplest idea was our most perfect. Let them do it themselves. What a beautiful idea. And what a beautiful world it will be. Indeed, we're doing the Lord's work. Or we would be if there was one. Three months and the unwashed rabid dogs of the world will do what rabid dogs can only do. And there we will be. A world of brilliant, purebred show dogs. Beautiful. How it always should have been. 
I'm only sorry those shit-coke devils are too oblivious to understand what monumental progression they're a part of. Martyrs, almost. Would you consider a rabid dog a martyr for having the sense to put itself down? Well, no matter. Even if we told them all in plain language, they'd hardly understand the significance. Better to let them exterminate themselves in ignorant bliss. Let them fight for what they care to fight for. As long as the outcome is the same, I couldn't be bothered by it. Is there any reason that he is here, at this base? I'd imagine they'd have hurried him off beneath the African desert at this point. Somewhere more remote. My understanding is that they will. Well, then why here first? It seems odd, is all. Well, for her. There's no purpose for artists going forward. I've been told he wants to hear the piece once in person before it's wiped out altogether. Well, fortunate for us, then. Fortunate, yes, we most certainly are. Martha stopped playing. She raised her arms high in the air and slammed down on the keys, producing an abrasive, squealing, non-existent chord. The heads of the audience twisted around and the conversation ceased. I'm not some performing animal, she screamed. I'm a fucking human being. I refuse. I refuse. You're sick. You're all sick monsters, all of you. The masked man grabbed the back of Martha's neck and smashed her head into the piano keys, replicating the harsh sound she'd created in defiance. That's enough, he growled. Play. Play the fucking songs. No. No, I won't. I won't do it. I'd rather you kill me. He grabbed her once more, shoved her face into the cold ivory of her life's work. Play it! No! Again, her head hit the piano. Blood was pouring from out her nose, dripping down onto the pristine white surface. I said no! God damn it! The man shouldered his rifle, pressed the barrel against her temple. I won't say it again. Play the fucking... That's enough. The voice had come from overhead. Martha heard a door close and craned her neck up to the top of the staircase. The masked man looked up and froze, backing away from Martha, and stood rigid, saluting. There he was. The president-elect began stepping down the stairs. Slowly he made his way across the room until stopping at Martha's side, looking down upon her. He was shorter than she imagined. His eyes were black, jet black like opal stones. He appeared inhuman. His shadow elongated and stretched across the floor in the light of the fire. There's no need for that, he said to the masked man and waved him off. I can't have you damaging the talent. He smiled at Martha. I'm a big fan, Miss Brooks. It's an honor to be in your presence. Martha leaned back and hacked a wad of spit at his face. Fuck you! He only laughed, pulled out a handkerchief from his breast pocket and wiped his cheek. I have just one request, please, Miss Brooks. Across the world they talk about your masterpiece, your rendition of the Moonlight Sonata. It would be my greatest pleasure to hear you play it here for me. Would you do that for me? Ms. Brooks. You're fucking evil. He tapped the G-note lightly with his finger. I'm not sure why you think that. 
because of what's going on out there. I didn't do that. Your words, Martha forced out the sentence through chattering, clenched teeth. Your words did this. Huh. You act like I'm in charge. You're about to be the president of a country that's been shattered like a broken mirror, of a country that no longer exists, in a world that won't either for much longer, at least in the way you or I know it. We both know I'm simply a talking piece. People have said as much for decades. This couldn't come as a surprise to you. I'm not running this godforsaken carnival. If it were up to me, I'd kill all of us right now. Every single one of us on Earth. Drop every nuclear missile on the planet at the same goddamned second. It is the only noble thing to do at this point. But people are too careful, despite their posturing. Most people don't want to die. Mutually assured destruction is a myth. So I have to be creative. There's no room to be sloppy in this society. The government can't do it for us. The people have to tear down the banners of their own nations. Then who are these people? Why protect the rich? Why protect these assholes? Martha threw fire with the last word and pointed out toward the passive audience watching in silence. If we're all worthless... Ah, the rich, the rich, the rich, he tittered. All the rich ever think about is the rich. Do you think you're any better? You wouldn't have a job if it weren't for these people. No one else can afford your talent, Miss Brooks. You're hardly different from these expiring relics of a golden age. The men in this room, the men in this room are your true demographic. But your question, I align myself with these people, not because I agree with them, but because I know they, with that boiling hatred and greed in their hearts, are the only people who can pull this off. With the world in their hands, we can finally achieve the only thing I really want, and that, Miss Brooks, is total and complete annihilation. I don't want power. I don't want money or control. I don't hate one creed or color or religion more than any other. Money is meaningless to me. It's merely a means to get what I want. And I am a simple man, Miss Brooks. I just want to be there when the world burns. Do you think these insulated one-percenters can truly turn the world against itself and walk out into the aftermath, step over the rubble, and just own the place? No. This revolution will affect every living thing that populates the planet. I don't even have to make sure of it. Entropy is the guiding light and life force of the entire universe. They will die, too. They think they won't. They think they can create a new world order through chaos. They believe they can live forever in one great, white, rich Elysium. But just because they're powerful does not make them smart. Chaos cannot create order.
Chaos only begets more chaos. They will try anyway, though, and that is what I am counting on, for every living thing on earth to die. So please, Miss Brooks, don't let those shackles fool you. We are all prisoners here, and I am the only one willing to do something about it. The president-elect of the former United States pulled a pistol from out his jacket and pressed the barrel against the side of Martha Brooks's head. Now play the fucking song. Jack Moody is a short story writer, poet, and freelance journalist from wherever he happens to be at the time. He is the author of the short stories collection Dancing to Broken Records. His work has also appeared in multiple magazines and journals, including the Saturday Evening Post. He didn't go to college. He likes his privacy, but you can also follow his author page on Instagram at Jack underscore is underscore Moody. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.